This morning we are taking a brief detour from our series through the letter to the Romans. We're turning to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15. This is not the account of what we call Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, uh, the passage most often associated with Palm Sunday. Rather, this morning, I have chosen, I pray that it is pleasing to the Lord, to fast forward to that day we refer to as Good Friday and the crucifixion of our Lord. We will read from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15, beginning at verse 16. Let us ask the Lord's blessing upon the reading and hearing of His Word. Our gracious Father, we give You thanks for the glorious Gospel of our, of our Savior, Your Son, Jesus Christ, who for our sake and for our salvation suffered the humiliation of the cross, that he might bear our sins in his own body on the tree and become a curse for us, that we might be redeemed from the curse. O oh God, grant us ears to hear, hearts to believe, souls to receive the promise of the gospel that we might live as those who have been crucified with Christ and have been raised up even now unto newness of life in union with him by the power of your spirit. To the glory of your name, amen. The word of God, it is written. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail! King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, 
save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And now unto him who loves us, who has freed us from our sins by his blood, to Jesus Christ be all praise, honor, and glory forever and ever. Amen. The cross of Jesus is at the heart of true Christian faith. Have you ever thought about how strange it is that the symbol of eternal life is actually an instrument of cruel death. Crucifixion was the Roman way of disposing with the criminal trash of the empire. Roman citizens could not be crucified. Crucifixion was meted out upon the lowest of the low, the vile. Gypsy thieves, runaway slaves, revolutionary terrorists. Jesus, Jesus, was regarded as such. As the prophet Isaiah 700 years before had spoken, he was despised and rejected by men. Mark tells us that Pilate, seeking to please the crowd, first ordered that Jesus be flogged, scourged, whipped. New Testament scholar William Hendrickson gives us some idea of what took place. He writes, 
The Roman scourge consisted of a short wooden handle to which several thongs were attached, the ends equipped with pieces of lead or brass and with sharply pointed bits of bone. The stripes were laid especially, not exclusively, on the victim's back, bared and bent. The body was at times torn and lacerated to such an extent that deep-seated veins and arteries, even entrails and inner organs were exposed. Such flogging often resulted in death. But those Roman soldiers had no idea of what was taking place as they flayed and flogged Jesus. Something which transcended that horrible moment of time, something which transcended, reached out over and beyond the boundaries of history and geography was taking place. There was more to Jesus' suffering than what met the eye that day. There was more than human cruelty at play. The eternal counsel of God was being fulfilled. As Isaiah the prophet had spoken, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. What was taking place in that horrible moment in time was the substitutionary suffering of the sinless Savior for your salvation and mine. His wounding for your eternal healing. What happened that day happened for you. The soldiers made a crown of thorns, put it on Jesus' head. Now these were not rose thorns. These were huge thorns, thorns like spikes, thorns that would not break, would not bend when crammed down and around and into his head. Why? Who would ever think of a crown of thorns? Where'd they get that idea? Well... They didn't know, the soldiers didn't know, but something which transcended that moment in time was taking place, something over, above, beyond the sarcastic mocking of the Roman soldiers. They had no idea, but just think about it. Crown. What kind of a crown? Crown of thorns. Not a crown of gold, not a crown of glory, a crown of thorns. Thorns. Thorns, crown of the curse. This was Adam's crown, the crown of the curse. The curse of thorns, you remember, which fell upon creation when Adam sinned against God, when Adam reached out to grasp equality with God and to set himself upon the throne of his life and the throne of the universe, this was Adam's crown, the curse upon his head, the curse upon your head. Adam's sin is our sin. The curse upon Adam is the curse upon us. 
Adam's crown is our crown. Crown of thorns. The curse of sin and death. So see it. See him. Jesus. The new Adam. The true Adam. The righteous Adam. The faithful Adam. The sinless Adam. The Apostle Paul calls Jesus the last Adam. Who took the place of the first Adam. There it is. See the gospel. Jesus took the curse off of your head and put it upon his own. He wore your crown of the curse to redeem you from the curse of sin and death and hell so that by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, you might wear the crown of his righteousness, the crown of eternal life. The scripture says that Christ became a curse for us to redeem us from the curse, cursed is the man who hangs on a tree. Christ for us. What happened that day happened for you and me. He came to make his blessings flow far as, far as the curse is found. They threw a purple robe around him, a mockery of that royal robe a king should wear. Hail, king of the Jews, they jeered with cruel derision. They crowned him, they cloaked him, they hailed him as a king, not as a king of power and glory, but as a king of suffering and shame. Not a king who would reign from an earthly throne, but a king who would be enthroned and lifted up upon a cross to die. They had no idea of the kingdom which would come through that cross. Then Jesus, beaten, battered, bruised, and bleeding, was led out of Jerusalem to be crucified in the words of Isaiah 700 years before, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. They brought him to the place called the skull. In Hebrew, Golgotha, and in English, by way of Latin, Calvary. Was it called the skull? Because the hill actually has the gruesome appearance of a skull with ominous, gaping caves that look like horrible, empty eye sockets. There really is such a hill outside Jerusalem. It really does look like a skull. Some of you have seen it. Or was it called the place of the skull simply because it was literally littered with the sun-bleached skulls of crucified criminals? There outside the city they crucified him and two others with him with Jesus in between them. Can you see those three crosses on that gruesome hill with Jesus in the center as though he were the leader, as though he were the worst of all. As prophesied by Isaiah, he was numbered with the transgressors. 
Jesus was crucified between two despicable criminals so that we might see and know and believe and trust that the Holy Son of God has come all the way down, 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 down to the very depths of human depravity to die a substitutionary death for the lowest of the low, such as you and I. His death on the cross is fully sufficient, infinitely sufficient to atone for the crime of our sins. There is no sin so great that it cannot be forgiven and cleansed through the blood of Jesus Christ. There is no sinner too low for Jesus Christ. To the thief on the cross who later looked to Jesus for mercy, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. There at the foot of the cross, the soldiers took Jesus' clothing and cast lots for it, dividing it among themselves. On this point, John Calvin comments, Christ was stripped of his garments that he might clothe us with his righteousness. His naked body was exposed to the insults of men that we may appear in glory before the judgment seat of God. Christ was stripped of his garments that he might clothe us with his righteousness. You see? Do you see him naked? Naked? There he is. Adam. Adam in his nakedness. You remember after Adam sinned against God, his nakedness was revealed and exposed the nakedness of his guilt and shame. Adam's eyes were opened. He knew that he was naked. Does it not cause you to tremble with fear when you think of standing before the judgment throne of the Holy One naked and exposed to the eye of Him to whom you must give account? Adam's sin is our sin. Adam's nakedness is our nakedness. But Jesus Christ took Adam's place and yours in the nakedness of our guilt and shame on the cross. Jesus clothed himself with your nakedness under the condemnation and curse of your sin so that your nakedness might be clothed with the royal robe of his righteousness. So that in Christ, you will not ever stand naked before the judgment seat. Little did those Roman brutes know that they were fulfilling divine prophecy. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Psalm 22. 
You see, something which, which transcended the limits of human history, which r- overruled the wickedness of human sin was taking place. The eternal counsel, the divine decree of God for the salvation of his people was being fulfilled in every detail by the crucifixion of Jesus. What happened on the cross happened for you. In some cases of crucifixion, the criminal's arms were tied to the cross beam, but in this case, nails were driven through Jesus' lower wrists, sometimes referred to as his hands. The horizontal cross beam with the criminal upon it was then hoisted up and attached to the vertical beam, and then the feet were nailed to the vertical beam, and there was a small seat on the vertical beam, which partially supported the weight of the body, not to relieve the agony, mind you, but to prolong it. To give the criminal just enough support so that he would have to suffer a little longer. Because, you see, in order to breathe, the crucified criminal, already beaten and flogged, half dead, and now stripped naked, had to pull with his arms and push with his legs to keep his chest cavity open. Muscle spasms convulsed the victim as intolerable pain pulsed through his entire body. The relief which only death could bring came slowly and dreadfully. Finally, as fatigue and exhaustion and exposure to the elements sucked the remaining strength out of the criminal He would slump on the cross. His lungs would collapse and he would suffocate to death. And justice would be served. Justice. Roman justice. But in this case, It was the justice of God. The justice of God served upon the Son of God. Something which transcended that horrible event in history, something which reached out over beyond the limits of history and geography was happening just as Isaiah prophesied. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief by by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. Now now here, here is the key to understanding the crucifixion of Jesus and the gospel of Jesus. Get this. You probably first of all and most often think of the cross as an expression of God's love. And you are not wrong in so thinking. Romans 5.8 says God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And there are many other verses in which the cross or the death of Jesus is referenced as an expression of God's love. But here's the question. Why is the cross, how could the cross be an expression of God's love? And the answer is, the cross is an expression of God's love towards sinners because the cross 
is also at the same time an expression of God's wrath and justice against sin. God's wrath and justice against sin poured out not upon sinners, but upon Jesus as our substitute. That is the love of God. God's wrath and justice against sins, yours and mine, was poured out on Jesus as our substitute. You see, brothers and sisters, God's love for sinners is not a soft and sentimental love. It's not. God's love for sinners is a love which satisfies, listen, fully satisfies His own holy, righteous justice against sin. The incarnate Son of God took our sins upon Himself and suffered in order to satisfy His own divine justice against our sins. That is love. That is love. So if you've ever wondered how God could really forgive you, and I hope that you have wondered that. I've lived long enough to wonder that about myself you've ever wondered how God could really forgive you for everything really? The answer is the free and full forgiveness of all your sins, God's mercy upon you, flows to you in His love for you through the satisfaction of His justice against you, executed upon Jesus on the cross. It's done. How do I know that I am forgiven? The only way that I know that I am forgiven is that I know that Jesus, as my substitutionary suffering Savior, bore the wrath of God and satisfied the justice of God against All my sins. That is love. That is the gospel. The apostle Peter in his first letter put it this way. He, Jesus himself, bore our sins in his body on the tree. The righteous for the unrighteous. What happened on the cross that day happened for you. At the ninth hour, three o'clock, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, quoting Psalm 22, verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the cry from hell. Jesus' physical torments on the cross were terrible indeed, but not nearly so terrible as the spiritual torment of being forsaken by the Father. Yet this is what Jesus suffered for our salvation, the hell of forsakenness by God. He suffered rejection by the Father. He was cut off and cast out. That is hell. We say in the Apostles' Creed, he descended into hell, the hell of being cast off and cast away from the Father's love. And in the hell of being forsaken by God, 
Jesus took upon himself and experienced the hell of the wrath of God upon sin to its infinite degree. He descended into the hell of condemnation which we deserve where there is nothing but forsakenness. But the promise of the gospel is that because Christ Jesus was forsaken on the cross, we who are united by his spirit to him in faith will never, ever be forsaken. He was cast out to assure you that you will not be cast out if indeed you belong to him by faith. The scripture says there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus for Christ himself was condemned in our place. What happened on the cross happened for you. Finally, Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. This was not a moment of defeat, but the moment of victory. Yes, on the cross, something which transcended that horrible moment in time, something which reached out and over beyond the limits of history and geography was taking place. The death of Jesus Christ was, in fact, the death of death itself for all who trust in him. He died your death to destroy your death, so that in union with him by faith, you might rise together with him. Again, I quote Calvin, the death of Christ is our confident hope of life and our fearless triumph over death because the Son of God has endured it in our stead and has been victorious. It's true. The creator of heaven and earth by whom all things were made has come into the world, has invaded death's domain and has conquered it to set us free. What happened on the cross happened for you. The cross of Christ is at the heart of true Christian faith and therefore the cross of Christ is in the heart of the true Christian Jesus Christ is your only way of salvation because no one else has ever done for you what he has done. No one else could, no one else would, and no one else will. But he has done everything. And this is why you and I every day of our lives must cling to the cross of Jesus. I know. I've lived long enough. I know more than I want to know what it is to be weighed down by the burden of sin. I know what it's like to look at my life and see all the selfish, stupid, sinful, hurtful things I've done even as a professing Christian. And to feel the pang of regret and shame and guilt, be overwhelmed with a sense of my own failure, my own filth, and to count, and to wonder how, wonder how could it be me? Yeah, it could be. I know what it's like not to be able to turn back the hands of time, not to be able to undo what I have done, not to be able to do now what I should have done then but didn't. I know what it's like. To know that I cannot save myself, cannot explain myself. 
And I know that there is only one way to deal with the reality of my sinfulness, the guilt of my sins, and the shame of my shortfalling. And that is to deal with it the only way God has said to deal with it and the only way God has graciously provided to run to Jesus as fast as I can, to throw myself at the foot of the cross, to cast my soul on the promise of his saving grace, and to cry out in desperation, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Brothers and sisters, this is the cross of Christ for you. To God be the glory. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty and everlasting God of grace and glory, righteousness and truth, we humbly bow before you to give thanks for the word of the gospel, the word of life, the word of salvation through your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you will work your word deep, deep into our souls for the renewal of our minds and the transformation of our lives. To the glory of your name. Amen. In response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, let us stand to affirm our faith as we say together the Philippian Creed based on the Apostle Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 2. Christian, in whom do you believe? We believe in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen.